Welcome to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org. This week on the podcast, physicists have revealed details of a quantum critical point that underlies high temperature superconductors. Then, in our second segment, columnist Sean B. Carroll discusses how running a biology research lab prepared him for writing a book that involves the French Resistance and Albert Camus. First, The Quantum Secret to Superconductivity by Natalie Wolchover. The energy equivalent of several kilograms of TNT surged into the coil, bathing the three millicarat crystal in its bore in one of the strongest magnetic fields ever generated. From the magnet came a small boom, like the sound of a foot stomping, said engineer Jerome Baird, but thankfully no explosion. His calculations held up. With that magnetic blast and a subsequent series of identical ones, researchers at the National Laboratory for Intense Magnetic Fields, or LNCMI, in Toulouse, France, uncovered a key property of the crystal, which is a matte black ceramic in a class of materials called cuprates, the most potent superconductors known. The findings, reported in the journal Nature, provide a major clue about the inner workings of cuprates. And they may help scientists understand how these materials allow electricity to flow freely at relatively high temperatures. Technically amazing, said J.C. Seamus Davis, an experimental physicist with appointments at Cornell, St. Andrews University in Scotland, and Brookhaven National Laboratory, who was not involved in the experiment. The paper is a masterpiece. The experimental team, led by LNCMI staff scientist Cyril Proust and Louis Taifer of the University of Sherbrooke in Canada, used their 90 Tesla magnet to momentarily strip away superconductivity in their cuprate sample. This revealed details of the underlying phase from which the behavior seems to arise. With the veil lifted, the scientists discovered a sharp change in behavior at what appears to be a quantum critical point in cuprates, reminiscent of the freezing point of water. Theorists have long speculated that such a quantum critical point might exist, and that it could play a key role in superconductivity, said Andrei Chubakov, a condensed matter theorist at the University of Minnesota. One thing is to say this, another thing is to measure it, Chubakov said. Superconductivity is a phenomenon in which electricity flows without resistance from the material it moves through, so that no energy is lost in the process. It occurs when electrons, the negatively charged carriers of electricity, unite to form pairs, balancing each other's properties in a way that allows them all to move in unison. The phase in which this happens is delicate, typically occurring only when a material is cooled to rock-bottom temperatures. But if wires could be engineered to act as superconductors at room temperature, experts say the lossless electrical transmission would greatly reduce global energy usage and could usher in a host of new technologies, such as magnetically levitating vehicles and cheap water purification systems. The force driving superconductivity is strongest in cuprates, as IBM researchers George Bednortz 
and K. Alexander Mueller discovered in 1986, in work that earned them Nobel Prizes the following year, cuprate superconduct at much higher temperatures than other materials, suggesting that their electrons are paired by a different and stronger glue. But cuprates must still be cooled below minus 100 degrees Celsius before they become superconductive. The glue must be further strengthened if superconductors operating temperatures are to be dialed up. For 30 years, scientists have asked, what is the glue? Or more precisely, the quantum mechanical interaction between electrons that causes superconductivity to arise in cuprates. While the detection of a quantum critical point does not definitively answer that question, this has really clarified the situation, said Subir Suchdev, a leading condensed matter theorist at Harvard. The finding knocks several proposals for the electron pairing glue and cuprates out of the running. There are now two prominent candidates for what's happening, Suchdev said. One of the candidates, if verified, would enter the textbooks as a completely novel quantum phenomenon with an exoticism that appeals to many theorists. But if the other, more conventional explanation of high-temperature superconductivity proves true, then, according to Davis, scientists will immediately know the key handle that needs to be turned to strengthen the effect. In that case, in the quest for room-temperature superconductivity, Davis said, the route forward would be clear. Proust, Typhair, and their collaborators set out eight years ago to blaze a trail to the center of the cuprate phase diagram, a map representing the hodgepodge of different phases exhibited by the materials as their properties are varied. The two extreme ends of the map are well understood. On the left side of the diagram are pure, unadulterated cuprate crystals which act as insulators. On the right of the diagram are cuprates that have been doped with many extra electrons, or holes, and behave like metals. Holes are deficits of electrons that behave like positively charged particles. The big fundamental question is, Typhair said, how does the system go from insulator to metal? Scientists become lost in the jumble of phases that occur at intermediate doping levels, including superconductivity which rises like a dome in the middle of the phase diagram. The map offers a clue. A line slopes up and to the left above the superconductivity dome, dividing two other, higher-temperature phases of the material. Extend this line downward to lower temperatures, and it strikes the base of the superconductivity dome exactly at its center point. Theorists have long suspected that the nature of this point might be the key to understanding superconductivity, which seems to form a bubble around it. Fifteen years ago, Typhair and Proust, who was then a postdoctoral researcher in Typhair's lab, started to think about how to investigate this possible critical point. The problem was that the two phases they observed at higher temperatures, which seemed bound to meet at this point at a temperature of absolute zero, disappeared when superconductivity kicked in. In order to probe what happens during the transition from one phase to the other, the team had to find a way to stop the electrons in cuprates from forming superconducting pairs in the vicinity of the critical point. To do this, the scientists needed a big magnet. Magnetic fields destroy superconductivity by exerting opposite forces on the electrons in each superconducting pair, breaking their connection. But the stronger the pairing glue in a superconductor, the harder it is to break. 
With cuprates, the magnetic field you need to dissuade superconductivity is very high, Proust said. Magnets can only be as strong as the materials they are made of, which must withstand the enormous mechanical forces generated by tsunamis of electricity. The 90 Tesla magnet at LNCMI works by charging a bank of 600 capacitors, then discharging them all at once into a coil the size of a trash can. The coil is made of ultra-strong copper alloy, reinforced with Zylon, a fiber stronger than Kevlar. For about 10 milliseconds, the flash flood of current generates a powerful magnetic field running through the coil's bore. Although the LNCMI magnet can't match the power of the 100 Tesla magnet at Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, we are able to make a very long pulse, two times longer than in Los Alamos, enabling more precise measurements, Bayard said. As the engineers built the magnet, collaborators at the University of British Columbia prepared samples of a cuprate called yttrium-barium copper oxide. They doped the samples with four different concentrations of holes, spanning from one side of the hypothesized critical point to the other. Upon cooling the samples to minus 223 degrees Celsius and blasting them with magnetic pulses, momentarily destroying superconductivity, they measured a property of the material that indicates the number of holes per atom that are involved in carrying electricity. Normally, this carrier density increases gradually as a function of doping, but at a critical point, it would be expected to change suddenly, indicating a spontaneous reorganization of the electrons in the crystal. And that's what the scientists measured, a sharp, six-fold jump in the carrier density at 19% doping, the expected location of the critical point. There's clearly a hidden critical point right where Typer says there is, said Davis, who found indirect evidence for the existence of this point in 2014. It points strongly to the idea that there is a sudden change to the electronic structure at that critical point. Unlike the freezing point of water, which is crossed by raising or lowering the water temperature, the critical point in cuprates is a quantum critical point or a point of balance between two competing quantum mechanical states at zero temperature. The quantum state that prevails to the left of the quantum critical point in the phase diagram causes the electrons to be ordered or arranged into a pattern. The quantum effect that dominates on the right causes the electrons to be free-moving. But as the system approaches the critical point from either the left or the right, the amount of order in the system starts to fluctuate due to competition between the two states. It is these fluctuations of order that are hypothesized to give rise to superconductivity in the vicinity of the quantum critical point. The question is, what kind of order is it? For the past five years, researchers have suspected a type of order known as charge density waves, essentially ripples of overly dense and underdense regions of electrons. But the new experiment, as well as recent findings by Davis's group, indicate that the charge density wave order dies out at a lower doping level, too far to the left of the quantum critical point. Now, two leading possibilities remain. The more conventional option, proposed in the late 1980s by David Pines, Douglas Scalapino, and other theorists, is antiferromagnetism 
a type of order in which electrons alternate their spin directions in a checkerboard pattern, up-down, up-down, etc. Fluctuations in this checkerboard arrangement near the quantum critical point cause oppositely spinning electrons to become attracted to each other and pair up, giving rise to superconductivity. Several indirect observations support the anti-ferromagnetism hypothesis. According to Chubakov, because this order would be expected to set in at a quantum critical point, the new discovery is the necessary missing link in the anti-ferromagnetism explanation. But if straightforward anti-ferromagnetism were the answer, physicists would have cracked the case decades ago. Experimenters have long tried and failed to detect anti-ferromagnetic order in the phase at the top left of the superconductivity dome, the presumed ordered phase to the left of the quantum critical point. The trouble in the cuprates is there is no long-range order that anyone can find, said Stephen Julian, an experimental condensed matter physicist at the University of Toronto. When experimenters look for the checkerboard pattern, they don't see it. However, defenders of the anti-ferromagnetic explanation point to the crystalline structure of cuprates, which are essentially stacked two-dimensional sheets, and to a 1975 theorem known as the Merman-Wagner theorem. The theorem says that true long-range anti-ferromagnetic order cannot develop in two-dimensional materials at non-zero temperatures. Instead, perhaps only patches of order develop, like sections of checkerboard, and these cannot be detected with existing experimental techniques. Long-range antiferromagnetic order only sets in at low temperatures, proponents say. The problem is that antiferromagnetism gets overridden by the superconductivity it incites, and so still cannot be observed. Not everyone thinks the Merman-Wagner theorem is relevant. Davis points out that antiferromagnetic order has been detected in undoped cuprates, which have the same two-dimensional structure. The lack of antiferromagnetic order seen so far near the critical point has led some researchers to abandon this idea and support a more exotic theory put forward by Suchthaif. His theory builds on concepts that Philip Anderson, a Nobel Prize winner and one of the founders of condensed matter physics, advanced in the 1980s. Such they've posits a kind of order in cuprates that isn't seen in other materials. In this order, electrons form composites possessing fractions of spin and charge. Such they've maintains that remnants of this order, which he has dubbed the fractionalized Fermi liquid, or FL star state, form the precursor to high-temperature superconductivity. Deciding whether the newfound quantum critical point is associated with antiferromagnetism or something more unusual like FL star will once again require powerful magnets. Experimenters are already working on ways to search for the checkerboard pattern of antiferromagnetic order at low temperatures, while using magnetic pulses to wipe out the superconductivity that arises there. All these things will happen now, Typher said. It looks so much like an anti-ferromagnetic transition at that critical point that that's the question we need to answer. If anti-ferromagnetism turns out to be the electron-pairing glue in cuprates, then theorists will immediately focus on determining why the glue is so much stronger in these materials than in others, in hopes of further strengthening it. 
FL star, on the other hand, would provide theorists with a new set of dials altogether. Either way, many are optimistic that they are on track to raise the operating temperatures of superconductors. I don't think anybody believes there's a fundamental limit that prevents room temperature superconductivity, Julian said. The argument is how long it's going to take us to get there. Some people think it's just around the corner. Some people think it's going to take a very long time. Second, Deep Secrets and the Thrill of Discovery by Sean B. Carroll. I have spent all of my adult life working in or running a biology research lab. It has been a very fulfilling full-time pursuit. So when colleagues discovered that I wrote a book that's set in Paris and delves into such topics as the French Resistance, the Cold War, and the author Albert Camus, they're somewhat baffled. The looks on their faces seem to say, why the heck did you do that? I understand their concern. Perhaps they worry that I have abandoned the rigors of science. So I try to reassure them. I first tell them that one of the principal characters in the story is a biologist, Jacques Monod, a well-known Nobel Prize-winning co-founder of the field of molecular biology. Then I explain that Monod resisted the Nazi occupation during World War II, effectively criticized Soviet-style communism, and was friends with Camus. That seems to satisfy most. But what I really want to tell them is how laboratory science and nonfiction writing have a lot more in common than they might think. Indeed, my experience in science helped to train me for writing. The process of researching a question, of testing hunches and digging for concrete evidence, is similar. And even better, the thrill of discovery is just as gratifying. A good example unfolded one December morning in Paris in 2011. I made my way to the prefecture of police just a few blocks south of Notre Dame Cathedral on the left bank. After showing the guard my passport, she pointed me upstairs to their archives. I introduced myself to the receptionist and was offered a seat at a large wooden table in a small reading room. What was I, a biologist from Wisconsin, doing at the Paris Police Archives? I was playing a hunch, a hunch that those archives might hold documents that could help me fill a gap in the story I was writing. I knew that Monod was living in occupied Paris in the fall of 1940 and pursuing his doctorate in zoology at the Sorbonne. By examining his research notebooks, I found that during November of that year, he obtained the first glimpse of the phenomenon of enzyme induction in bacteria that would lead to his Nobel Prize 25 years later. But I had also learned from other sources that Monod joined the resistance that fall and that he had experienced some sort of close brush with the authorities. What I didn't know was how they caught on to him or why he wasn't punished while others were imprisoned and a few even executed. It had taken me several months to find some clues and follow their trail to the prefecture. The attendant brought me a box full of hand-labeled, rumpled brown folders. I started browsing the case files, 
hoping that one document might at least mention Manad. Inside a bulky folder, I found a list of people that the police had obtained from the interrogation of a suspect. There, 15th on the list, was Manad's name and address. Goosebumps. Then, to my amazement, I came upon an entire dossier with Manad's name on it. Inside, on delicate, tissue-thin paper, was a handwritten document. Knocking 30 years of rust off my French, I figured out that it was a detective's report. I struggled but was able to decipher that it was the policeman's account of searches he made of Manad's home and laboratory. Manju, I knew I had storyteller's gold. New and dramatic details that no one had unearthed before. A very pleasant and yet familiar feeling swept through me. When had I felt this way before? A handful of times during my research career, I have been lucky to experience or share a eureka moment. On each of these very rare occasions, something spectacular appeared in a microscope, something so unexpected that it made me call out to lab mates or wake them up at home, and to make a victory run to the liquor store. The unexpected part is really important. Anything worth doing in science is hard and usually takes a long time. The results are never guaranteed. So we don't bother spending much time trying to imagine what every possible good outcome might look like. In my case, each moment of discovery was the visible result of an experiment, an image that we had never imagined, but one scene made us realize in an instant we had bolted into new territory. The same phenomenon happened several times in the course of my research trips to Paris. Facing some crucial gap in the story, I would discover something that gave me more than I could have wished for. Each breakthrough came from playing a hunch, from trying to find missing data. And, as in science, sometimes I got a lot of help. One of my toughest challenges was documenting the relationship between Monod and Camus. Despite all that had been written on Camus, there was virtually nothing to go on from his biographers. I asked Olivier Monod, one of Jacques' twin sons, and a retired geologist, if he would please look at his father's copies of Camus' books to see if any had been inscribed by the author. On a later trip to Paris, after visiting a former associate of his father's, Olivier casually asked if we might go for a coffee. Of course, I answered. We dropped into the nearest café, and Olivier opened his briefcase. He handed me copies of two inscriptions that were not only warm and playful, but they were nine years apart. I was ecstatic. Here was the first concrete evidence of the duration of the two men's friendship. Then Olivier interrupted my babbling to say that when he opened one of the books, something fell out. Grinning, he handed over a letter from Camus to his father, with an even earlier date. My jaw dropped. The letter had been tucked into the book for more than 60 years. No one in the family had known it existed. Neither he nor I could have possibly seen that coming. It got even better. In his letter, Camus asked Monod for help with a delicate matter. His mistress's father urgently needed medical care. 
I jumped and hugged Olivier. He didn't see that coming either. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.